0: Thanks for downloading this History Hub podcast. In this episode, a paper recorded at Commemorating Partition and Civil Wars in Ireland, 2020-2023 Civil Wars and Their Legacy This conference took place in Queen's University Belfast on the 10th of March, 2017. The conference was organised as part of the Arts and Humanities Research Council funded project Commemorating Partition and Civil Wars in Ireland, 2020-2023 in conjunction with Queen's University School of History, Anthropology, Philosophy and Politics, the Institute of Irish Studies, and the Senator George J. Mitchell Institute for Global Peace, Security and Justice. Commemorating Partition and Civil Wars in Ireland 2020-2023 is a project run by Dr. Marie Coleman and Dr. Dominic Bryan that examines approaches to the upcoming centenary of the Partition of Ireland. All four papers of the conference were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media and are now publicly available on History Hope. This episode features the conference keynote lecture, which is given by David Armitage, Lloyd C. Blankfein Professor of History at Harvard University. The lecture, Civil Wars, A History and Ideas, was introduced by Professor Richard English, Pro-Vice-Chancellor for Internationalisation and Engagement at Queen's University Belfast.
1: Thank you very much indeed. It's a great pleasure to welcome you all to this keynote lecture this afternoon. To thank my friend and colleague Marie Coleman for putting together such a splendid event here at Queen's, and to introduce our distinguished keynote lecturer. David Armitage, the Lloyd C. Blankfin Professor of History at Harvard University, is one of the world's finest historians. Educated at Cambridge and Princeton, Professor Armitage worked for 11 years at Columbia University in New York before moving to Harvard in 2004. A prize-winning scholar and teacher, he's the author of a series of immensely powerful books on major topics. The Ideological Origins of the British Empire, published in 2000, redefined our understanding of British imperial ideology, winning the Longman History Today Book of the Year Award as it did so. The Declaration of Independence, a global history published in 2007, reimagined its subject through its scholarly understanding of how other peoples and places read and responded to that declaration. Foundations of Modern International Thought published in 2013 again reflected Professor Armitage's capacity for decisive big picture history. Indeed, returning to the historical big picture is a phrase which he himself uses in his brilliant new book, Civil Wars, A History in Ideas, which he's launching here in Queen's today after this lecture. Some books, when you read them, you realise are just really important books. Okay, So if you take nothing else from my introduction today, take this. If you think you understand political violence, you need to read. Indeed, you need to buy and read. This book. It's deeply researched, it's powerfully argued, it's elegantly written, and it's ambitiously original. And it reflects David's distinctive skills as an historian and compels us to rethink a major phenomenon. Indeed, one of the things that's repeatedly struck me about David's work is the degree to which it emphasizes that so many major subjects are only open to full understanding if we do interrogate them historically, and indeed with historians among the erudite interrogators. The Civil Wars book emerged from David's 2010 Wiles lectures here at Queen's, which a number of us had the privilege to hear, and it's wonderful to welcome him back here to speak about its subject tonight. And so, to lecture on the subject of Civil Wars, A History in Ideas, please now join me in warmly welcoming Professor David Armitage.
2: Thank you so very much, Richard. I don't think I can live after that introduction, but uh, if you can er- erase that from your mind and uh, uh, lis- listen to what I have to say in the next 45 minutes or so, I'll, I'll try and suggest at least some of the uh, elements of the book itself, and then we'll be very happy to answer further questions afterwards as well. As Marie said, I've been on rather an odyssey to get here. Uh, I deeply regret having missed the papers earlier today, uh, hearing Bill and the other papers, especially on the Finnish Civil War, uh, Uh, But British Airways was not cooperating. However, this is not the longest odyssey I've ever taken to get to a podium at Queen's. When I came to give the Wiles lectures uh, here seven years ago, uh, some of you may remember this was May 2010, uh, The Ash Cloud from Iceland... (laughs) I learned my one word of Icelandic at that point, uh, I was spewing ash everywhere so I went on a 24-hour odyssey from Boston to London, London to Glasgow, Glasgow to Stranra, Stranra to Belfast, uh, using every form of uh, uh, transportation uh, except a mule and a kayak, I think, uh, to screech up on two wheels here in time for those Wiles lectures. Apart from that, I have extraordinarily, deeply happy memories of that moment in, in 2010 when I gave a very, very early version indeed of the argument of this book. At the behest at that point of the late, great Chris Bailey, I think many of you remember uh, uh, Chris, a wonderful human being and as wonderful a historian as he was a human being. So I really wanted to uh, remember him at this point because I would not have come uh, to give the Wiles Lectures were it not for Chris and his inspiration and support was crucial to me throughout my career since my time as a graduate student as well, but this book would not exist without him and this book would certainly not exist uh, without uh, Queen's University, so it's an enormous pleasure to uh, be here this afternoon and to, to launch the book here as well. When I was asked to give the Wiles Lectures, uh, I could hardly believe my luck. I'd read a lot of the volumes that had come out of the Wiles Lectures, even when I was a schoolboy, um, and couldn't quite believe that I'd been given the opportunity to enter into the, uh, the, uh, the great uh, uh, train of extraordinary uh, historical reflections, which had come under the, uh, the banner of the Wiles Lectures. And uh, that sense of good luck turned rapidly to extreme panic when I got the details of what I was meant to do Uh, and some of you may may remember that the charge to the Wiles lecturer uh, is quotes to place one's own historical researches within the history of civilization Uh, a tiny thing to do over four hours Um, luckily uh, you get immense support here as a Wiles lecturer and even more luckily you get uh, barrel loads of extraordinarily fine bush mills afterwards as well and that deadens some of the pain uh, during the, uh, the the rapier-like uh, seminar sessions afterwards as well I joke about this now because with, with, with distance but I can say very firmly that um, uh, this book again would not exist not only without the original invitation to give the Wiles lectures but certainly the impetus and the input The encouragement uh, and the ruthless criticism of friends and colleagues during the seminars after those Wiles lectures immeasurably uh, enriched and expanded my ideas. And a book that should have taken a year or two to finish after those lectures took seven years to take account of those discussions, which Richard was part and David Livingston and and others as well. So I I have very happy memories and enormous thanks for that. So, again, thank you uh, to Marie and to everyone for allowing me to come this evening. Now, when we're talking about memories, I want to take you again back down memory lane uh, to that moment not so very long ago when history was supposed to end. In the years after 1989, the free market was going to supplant every other form of economic organisation. Its elective affinity with democracy was apparently going to ensure that all other forms of politics succumbed to its advance. Globalisation was going to create a borderless world of unlimited prosperity and unassailable human rights progress was going to reach its consummation in a Kantian utopia of perpetual peace. How very far away that moment feels now. As we all know now, history bit back, and with a vengeance. It was apparently just drawing its breath before springing back into action with ever more unsettling energy. Mercantilism seems to be returning, slamming globalization into reverse. The historically brief alliance, as we might now see it, between liberalism and democracy, is coming apart at the seams all over the world. And the world is still obviously a very violent place. States are mostly at peace with each other, to be sure. But since 1989, wars within states have become the most widespread, the most destructive, and therefore perhaps we might say the most characteristic form of organised human violence. Indeed, of the 40 or so wars now in progress around the world, from Afghanistan to Yemen, only one is currently between two states. That is the conflict between India and Pakistan over Kashmir. All of the rest of the the world's current conflicts started within, at least began within, the boundaries of a single state. Far from the better angels of our nature, winning the war on war, to take the titles of two recent, perhaps over-optimistic books on the subject, a long peace among states has stood under a dark shadow, the shadow of civil war. One global estimate of battle deaths in civil wars since 1945 reaches to over 25 million casualties. That is about half the estimated direct casualties in the Second World War. Even that count, of course, does not include civilians, the wounded, the displaced, or those who die from the knock-on effects of civil war, such as disease and malnutrition. If we look beyond the human toll of civil war, devastating though that has been, to its material and economic costs, the impact has been no less devastating. Think not just of the 500,000 Syrians killed since 2011, or the more than half of that country's population civil war has displaced, but also uh, the other forms of destruction of historic sites, the wasting of resources, the diversion of spending from welfare to warfare, the destruction of of the economy, the fomentation of crime and disease, and the suppressed productivity which we know always comes in the wake of uh, contemporary civil wars often for decades after a conflict. Those hard-nosed economists who study global development uh, calculated an annual price tag for civil wars at about $123 billion. That is roughly the equivalent of the amount the Global North budgets for economic aid to the Global South. Not without reason, as Paul Collier described, civil war as development in reverse. How are we to make sense of such mayhem? One way in which we might do this usually is to turn to social and political theory, For the intellectual and conceptual resources to grapple with such a challenge. Yet, when it comes to civil war, we look in vain. As Bill Cassane has recently noted, there has been in the history of political thought no systematic treatise on civil war. There is indeed no great work entitled On Civil War to stand alongside, say, Clausewitz's On War or Hannah Arendt's On Revolution. Indeed, Clausewitz himself hardly ever discusses civil war in his whole vast oeuvre, and Arendt dismissed civil war, along with war itself, as atavistic and anti-modern in contrast to revolution. In the words of the Italian social theorist, social and political theorist Giorgio Agamben recently, quotes, "...there exists today both a polymology, a theory of war, and an ironology, a theory of peace, but there is no stasiology, no theory of civil war." I think our own age demands an unblinking encounter with civil war, and if theory cannot help, perhaps history can. Civil wars, as we all know, have long been among the most destructive of all human conflicts, and a few raw numbers can just very briefly illustrate this. At the height of Rome's civil wars in the first century BCE, perhaps a quarter of all its male citizens aged between 17 and 46 were in arms at some point. 1700 years later, it's been calculated that uh, uh, close to a a greater proportion of England's population died during the Civil Wars of the 1640s than later perished in the First World War. And two centuries later still, the combined death toll from both sides in the U.S. Civil War was vastly larger relative to the size of the population at the time than the casualty rate in the Second World War. The estimated number, uh, now hovering around 750,000 from both North and South would be roughly equivalent to about 7.5 million deaths in the uh, present day American population. Slaughter on such a scale sighed through families, shattered communities, shaped nations, and scarred imaginations for centuries to come. Yet, one of the, the lessons I want to uh, 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 impart in the book is that we should be very cautious about assuming that civil war is an inevitable part of our makeup a feature, not a bug, in the software that makes us human, as some have claimed. That might be to doom us to suffer civil war ad infinitum. To unsettle that notion, the notion that we may be condemned to interminable civil war, rather than destined for the possibility of perpetual peace, in the book I bring historical tools to bear on the challenge of civil war. I argue that it's neither eternal nor inexplicable. It has a history with an identifiable beginning if not yet quite, a discernible end. This historical treatment reveals the contingency of the category of civil war to combat those who might assume its permanence and durability. What humans have invented, we may yet dismantle. What has been created through an effort of intellectual will can be demolished by a similar effort of imaginative determination. The book... I believe, is the first long-range history of civil wars from their beginnings in Republican Rome all the way up to the present in the Middle East and South Asia, over 2,000 years from, as it were, Sulla to Syria. My goal was to point out the significance of civil war in forming the ways in which we think about the world and have thought about the world. I argue that despite the destructiveness of civil war, it has been throughout history conceptually generative because of the challenges it poses. Without those challenges, I argue, our conceptions of politics, authority, revolution, international law, cosmopolitanism, humanitarianism and globalisation, to name just a few, would have been quite different, perhaps even in some ways poorer. The experience of civil war, the efforts to understand it, to ameliorate it, even ultimately to prevent it, continue to inform our ideas of community, authority and sovereignty to this day. More than most other forms of conflict... Civil wars spring from deep and deadly divisions, even as at the same time they expose identities and commonalities. To call a war civil is to acknowledge the familiarity of the enemies as members of the same community, not aliens but fellow citizens. Civil war has something atrocious about it, remarks Carl Schmitt. It is fraternal war because it is conducted within a common political unit. And because both warring sides at the same time absolutely affirm and absolutely deny this common unit. That, I think, is one basic source of our horror about civil wars. And we should not underestimate their effect in forcing a recognition of commonality amid confrontation, of making us see ourselves in the very mirror of enmity. Civil war has been so paradoxically fertile because there's never been a time when its definition was settled to everyone's satisfaction or when the term's application could be used without question or contention. I saw the slide from uh, the last uh, talk about uh, the the Finnish civil war, and that's very typical of the different forms of naming uh, that come uh, uh, within and after these conflicts. Civil war has been disputed and debated within many different historical contexts because naming is always a form of framing. The application of the term civil war may depend upon whether you're a ruler or a rebel, the victor or the vanquished, an established government or an interested third party. And, of course, the battle over names, as again we saw with the Finnish conflict, uh, can continue long after the conflict itself has ceased. Just to take another example from the 20th century, using the term civil war to describe the struggle between the Italian resistance and the fascist government during the Second World War remains controversial to this day because of the apparent equivalence it seemed to imply between the two sides. The very language of civil war can arouse passions, even when the embers of conflict have long since cooled. Now, for those of us lucky enough to live in the shade of the so-called long peace, Civil war is now more a matter of memory and metaphor than lived experience. But uh, there's been a notable uptick and a very worrying uptick in the use of the metaphorical language of civil war uh, in recent politics. Uh, just to take one example, Newt Gingrich uh, described American politics as if it were a civil war. Uh, these are his words, uh, prophetic words from about a decade ago, but seem to be almost the operating program uh, of the, the current administration in the, in the U.S., This is is, uh, Gingrich. The left at its core, he said, understands in a way that Grant understood after Shiloh that this is a civil war, that only one side will prevail and the other side will be relegated to history. He then sketched out the terms of that fight. This war has to be fought with the scale and duration and savagery that is only true of civil wars. While we are lucky in this country, the U.S., that our civil wars are fought at the battle box, not on the battlefields, nonetheless, it is a civil war. Just to take a slightly different context, but again, these are diagnostically interesting, I think. In the aftermath of the Daesh attack on Paris in November 2015, then-French Prime Minister Manuel Valls, charged the right-wing Front National, was stirring up civil war in France. There are two options for our country, he said then. There is the option of the extreme right, which basically foments division. That division could lead to guerre civile. But there is another vision, the vision of the republic and its values, which brings people together. Just think about recent headlines. There was a civil war in the Tory party just after the Brexit referendum. Labour in the UK seems to be in perpetual civil war at the moment. And right now, uh, uh, literally as we speak, the Republicans in the US are said, this was in the New York Times yesterday morning, said to be in civil war about the replacement for the Affordable Care Act. In statements such as these, which could be reproduced endlessly uh, from around the world, democratic politics around the globe seems increasingly to be civil war by other means. Civil wars seem to be everywhere, in the headlines and on the ground, uh, in hearts and minds, and of course in the commemoration of civil wars past. As Viet Tan Nguyen has recently written quotes, all wars are fought twice, the first time on the battlefield, the second time in memory. That, I think, is especially true of civil wars and especially germane to the conference today. Some countries, of course, have imagined themselves free of civil war. Others can hardly imagine themselves at all without the memories of civil war. The United States, uh, perhaps most conspicuously among them. And the international community perceives still others, in Iraq, for instance, as a perpetual battleground of unending civil wars. In each case, there seems little doubt about what is and is not a civil war in the minds of those who use these terms. Everyone knows it when they see it, we might say. But the benefit of some history, and perhaps the curse of remembering it, uh, is that the the knowledge that civil war has never been quite as stable or transparent a category as its use in popular speech or sometimes ideological speech might imply. Any complex idea like civil war, I argue, has multiple pasts. Historians can show the paths not taken, as well as the many and winding roads by which we came to our present understandings and indeed our present confusions. A fashionable term for that procedure among intellectual historians is intellectual genealogy, with uh, a hat tip to Nietzsche and then to Foucault. I call my own version of it a history in ideas, to distinguish it from that long-established strain of intellectual history known as the history of ideas – The latter, as most of you will know, reconstructed the biographies of big concepts, nature, romanticism, the great chain of being across the ages, as if the ideas themselves were somehow alive and had an existence independent of those who deployed them. The reaction against this from contextualists like Quentin Skinner, for instance, pushed historians to narrower and narrower time focuses uh, and uh, prevented any sense of the big picture of the long-term development of arguments uh, and uh, concepts within those arguments. And I think there's now a reaction against that uh, narrowing of focus and expansion again with intellectual historians regaining their courage to construct more subtle and complex histories in ideas over longer periods of notions like happiness and genius, toleration and common sense, sovereignty and democracy, just to take a few examples among recent publications, all of those now emerging as central topics of study for historians and political theorists. My book joins these new histories by investigating one key idea in Western and ultimately in global argument in its multiple historical contexts. And it does so in particular as a history of a key concept derived from Rome. The Romans alone, I argue, would bear the guilt of inventing civil war and for learning how to tell its stories and determining what its history might have meant. Not all roads lead from Rome in the foundation of modern political vocabulary, but a great many do, among them some of the most enduring ideas of the modern lexicon, liberty, empire, property, rights, and civil war. Conflict over the meaning of civil war, as much as the meaning of conflict itself, are, I think, prime subjects for the kind of historical treatment I've subjected civil war to here. And that treatment must, I argue, begin in the 1st century BCE, if we're going to be able to understand our own conflicts here in the 21st century. Now, just to give you a very brief sketch of the argument, and then I'll give two key examples to show the procedure and some of the connections before wrapping up uh, with uh, a few conclusions. My argument identifies three major turning points uh, in discussions of civil war across the centuries. The first, quite late, comes in the latter part of the 18th century, at a moment when contemporaries were needing to distinguish civil war from another uh, relatively novel category of violent and transformative upheaval revolution at that point. The second, in the mid-19th century, occurred when the first attempts were made to pin down the meaning of civil war in legal vocabulary, an effort made not at all coincidentally during the conflict we now know as the American Civil War of 1861-65. And the third came during the late phases of the Cold War, when social scientists uh, decided to define the term civil war to help them to analyze conflicts going on around the world during the era of proxy wars and decolonization. I'll return to that moment in, in a second. Our own confusions about the meaning and the application of civil war to contemporary conflicts are, I argue, the product of this long and contested but also sedimented history only with the help of history, a kind of archaeological peeling back of the layers of that history, uh, I argue, can help us to understand just why its meaning remains so controversial today. To tell this long story over uh, 2,000 years, I've broken the book into three parts each of two chapters. The first part, Roads from Rome, traces changing conceptions of civil war over the long durée from the 1st century BCE to the 5th century CE, roughly from Cicero to St. Augustine. During that period, I argue, Roman conceptions decisively shaped arguments about civil war, about its normative and legal definition, about how to recognize it, about its genesis, and about the likelihood of its recurrence, and indeed about its ethical significance as well. I argue that all roads led from Rome, not uh, from Athens and the world of Thucydides, for instance, uh, because there, in, uh, uh, in, in ancient Greece, conflict within the community was understood very differently from ideas of civil war invented at Rome. I get a lot of flack when I give talks about this in the U.S., because everybody there, of course, uh, remembers that Thucydides is an, uh, an American international relations theorist, and I have to insist he was actually a Greek historian uh, with rather slightly different, different, different ideas. Uh, But I do insist on the the primacy of Rome, not least because one of my major figures, Cicero, uh, himself said uh, the the Greeks had their own peculiar internal dissensions and tumults. But we, the Romans, uh, for the first time had uh, accursed civil wars, pestifera bella cavilia. He knew the difference. Uh, And we can talk a little bit more about why I think that difference is, is so important in a moment. Civil war, uh, I argue, because of this fact of its invention in the the 1st century BCE, civil war was not a fact of nature waiting to be discovered. It was an artifact of human culture that had to be invented. The invention of civil war is, I uh, uh, show, only a little over 2,000 years old and can be dated quite precisely to the 1st century BCE. The Romans were the first to understand their uh, acts of collective violence as both civil and as war. So my my point is epistemological rather than ontological. They're obviously not the first peoples to have experienced what we would call broadly internal conflict, but they were first to experience it as civil and as war at the same time. They understood their most wrenching conflicts in precisely political and legal terms, as struggles among citizens, of course in Latin kives, from which we derive the word civil, as well as civility, civilization, civilian. Struggles between citizens, among citizens, that rose to the level of war, bellum, hence bellum cavile, that uh, uh, compound term. The Romans also always named their, or usually named their, conflicts after the enemy they were fighting. Think of the Jugurthine War, for instance, against Jugurtha. In this case, the war they were fighting was against their own fellow citizens. However, because the Romans believed a war could only be just if it were fought against an external enemy or hostess, these internal enemies were uniquely unsettling. The resulting idea of civil war was deliberately paradoxical, even oxymoronic. A war which could not be a war fought against enemies who were not really enemies. And for this reason, I think, the Romans adopted uh, and deployed the idea of civil war very reluctantly at first and for a long time used it only with trepidation the best example of this, the most graphic example, is Julius Caesar. He narrated his power struggle with Pompey in an unfinished work, now known simply as The Civil War, not his title. Uh, that's a, a later addition to the surviving manuscripts. And indeed, he did all he could possibly do to avoid using the phrase in his text. He never used, In the text, he never uses his own, the term in his own voice. It's only a couple of references uh, ventriloquized through soldiers, for instance, in, in his own work. And I think also emblematic in this uh, in, in this regard is uh, caesar 's telling of perhaps the single most metaphorically freighted moment from the Roman civil wars, what we now know as the crossing of the Rubicon. if you remember caesar 's own account, uh, he is with his army on one side of the river in one sentence and in the next sentence he's on the other side of the river there is no sentence in between describing the passage from one place to the other he and his army magically materialize on the other side he cannot speak about that moment of course so symbolically freighted because it was moving from the arena of military authority into the arena of civil authority uh, and crossing that boundary was precisely what triggered civil war at, at that point The enormity of that crime perhaps helps to explain why the Romans were so reticent in giving civil war a name and why they remained so reluctant to use it long after its invention. For Caesar, as for many of the Romans, civil war remained the war that dared not speak its name. There was also an enduring and disturbing strain of Roman history, and a very influential one, that suggested a tight relationship between civil war and civilization, to use a slightly anachronistic term. Civil wars came back so often across the history of the Roman Republic and into the early decades of the Empire that they appeared to its historians, poets, and orators to be woven into the fabric of Roman public life itself, creating a narrative or a set of narratives of a civilization prone to civil war, perhaps even cursed by civil war, that would endure for centuries and inform later understandings of civil war across early modern and modern Europe. Indeed, for more than a millennium and a half, uh, we could say that civil war was viewed through Rome-tinted spectacles. As I show in the second part of the book, Early Modern Crossroads, those explanations and narratives from, from Rome provided the repertoire from which later thinkers in Europe between the 16th and the 18th centuries drew their own conceptions of civil war. And over the Roman palimpsest of civil war would soon be written a new narrative which never entirely effaced the old, a narrative not of destructive civil wars but rather of transformative revolutions. During and after the 18th century, these two conceptual clusters, civil war and revolution, acquired quite distinct moral and political implications. Civil war was generally thought to be backward-looking, calamitous and regressive, while revolution became future-oriented, fertile, progressive, Successful civil wars, however, were rebranded as revolutions, and revolutionaries denied that they had been engaged in civil wars. I think a key early example of this is what we now call the American Revolution, which both sides, or uh, um, uh, people on both sides in the mid-1770s up to 1774, 1775 even, uh, called a civil war, even the American Civil War. That's the first time I've seen that term being used in 1774, 1775. Now I think retrospectively we can perform the conjugation. I am a revolutionary, you are a rebel, but they are engaged in civil war. The third part of the book, Passed to the Present, traces the conceptual heritages of civil war uh, roughly from the era of the US Civil War down to our own time. The 19th century's great contribution to the history of ideas of civil war, I argue, was the attempt to ameliorate or to civilize civil war by bringing it under the domain of law, beginning with the first modern codification of the laws of war by the Prussian, later American Francis Lieber in the 1860s in the so-called Lieber Code, or General Orders No. 100, as it was more formally known for the Union Army in 1863. This then provided the foundations for the Hague and Geneva Conventions and set off uh, a series of discussions and revisions, uh, including the additional protocols to the Geneva Conventions, which uh, continue to shape and inform uh, the uh, the conduct and and the the international community's attitude towards civil war to this day. And I'll talk about that just in in one moment. Uh, The the term that arises in the course of those discussions, especially after the Second World War, the more technical term is non-international armed conflict rather than civil war, or NIAC. Uh, the first time I heard NIAC, I thought, is, is this a conflict I'd never heard of somewhere? And then an international lawyer said, no, no, that's what we call it, non-international armed conflict. Everyone else says civil war. We talk among ourselves about NIACs. And there's an interesting history, as it turns out, about why that term emerged, um, what it was meant to include and to exclude what the, uh, the, the purpose of that was, which I tell yeah. in the book itself. Civilizing civil war remains a task for the international legal community down to our own time. The roots of their concern and the tensions civil war raised within what we now call international humanitarian law are indeed the subject of the latter part of the book. Here I trace developments as civil war went global across the course of the 20th century. The boundaries of the community within which civil wars took place expanded beyond those of states and empires to encompass the whole world in a conception of global civil war. Found especially during the early 1960s, there were a few stray antecedents in the earlier part of the century, but there's a remarkable moment of about six months um, uh, in early 1962 when that unlikely trio of Carl Schmitt, John F. Kennedy and Hannah Arendt all deploy uh, almost simultaneously the concept of global civil war at that moment. This expansion of the community within which civil war took place to encompass all of humanity, the entire globe, had deep roots in various strains of cosmopolitan thought, I've argued elsewhere outside the book, which long suggested that all wars among humans were indeed civil wars. This globalization of the idea of civil war also collided with the late 20th century effort, which I mentioned briefly earlier and I'll come back to in a second, by social scientists to bring conceptual clarity, or as they thought, to the study of civil war, starting in the 1960s during the era of anti-colonial wars, conflicts, as we'll see, that were deliberately excluded uh, at the time from the original definitions of civil wars used by social scientists to engage in aggregate analysis of this form of conflict. I show in the conclusion of the book that these past conceptions of civil war endure into the present in the intellectual DNA of of international organisations, journalistic organs, and indeed in some of our scholarly discussions. They are, I argue, the cause of much of our own conceptual confusion about what is and is not civil war. The sedimented conceptual history of civil war going back indeed to the Roman Republic and layered over since then with the language of the law and the social sciences has given rise to the complexity in our current understandings. Now, let me just illustrate this very briefly uh, with two linked examples. The first taking you back to that, early, that Cold War context in the 1960s and the social scientific engagement with civil war, the second uh, from the Iraq War, the second Gulf War, uh, indeed precisely the moment when I initially conceived of this book around 2006-2007. In the early 1960s, uh, the Correlates of War project, then at the University of Michigan, emerged as the most systematic attempt by the empirical social sciences to measure the incidence of conflict across the globe by the accumulation and analysis of data on wars since 1816, the aftermath of the Vienna settlement. Initially focused on interstate conflict, the project soon had to expand to include civil wars, insurgencies, and foreign interventions. But how are these forms of conflict to be distinguished from each other? Discriminations were needed. The project's definition of civil war had a numerical cutoff point, a set of boundary conditions, some empirical criteria, and a whole host of problems. So here's the definition. Sustained military combat, primarily internal, resulting in at least 1,000 battle deaths per year, pitting central government forces against an insurgent force, Capable of inflicting upon the government forces at least 5% of the fatalities the insurgents sustain. Hope you all have that, because I'll ask you to parrot that back in a moment. This definition has been called deceptively straightforward. (laughs) As, of course, it is. But it was, of course, originally designed precisely to create large enough samples to be meaningful to create a data set. but also, crucially at the time, to exclude many conflicts that might have blurred the original analysis. So just to run through a few of of the criteria then to see uh, whether it works for some of the civil wars with which we're familiar. According to this definition, civil war had to be militarized to distinguish it from other forms of internal violence, like riots and coup d'etat. It was only, "quotes" primarily internal because it also had to in- encompass internationalized civil wars into which outside powers or forces had intervened. Most modern civil wars are internationalized in that sense. 1,000 battlefield deaths annually defined it as a major civil war. It had to have two sides, but it wasn't clear originally whether it had, uh, had to have only two sides, one of which was the existing government. And it had to be militarized on both of those sides to distinguish it from, say, massacres or genocide. But of course, as I've just mentioned, there were many difficulties with this definition. The greatest, surely, is the number of conflicts it does not encompass. uh, uh, And we'll come to that in just a moment. But I think the first was the condition of being primarily internal. That was a crucial part of the definition originally, which changed later, in fact. That is internal to a sovereign state and recognized as such, by the international community and this was specified originally as being internal to the metropole a very uh, important distinction which again was lifted later because it put in place originally, uh, was put in place originally quite deliberately to exclude post-colonial wars of national liberation, uh, and uh, it, would em- it was omitted uh, at the time a conflict like the Algerian War, for instance. Going back further in time, it wouldn't have encompassed the American Revolution as a civil war, or many wars of secession, for instance, would not be called civil wars by that original definition. The second problem was that the emphasis on metropoles also implied the existence not just of states, but of those states generally thought of as, quote, Westphalian. That is, there could not really be civil wars before roughly the early 19th century on this determination. It's perfectly circular uh, because there were few states recognizable in the sense international relations scholars might identify those creatures in all their territorial boundedness. Without unitary sovereignty and external recognition, it seemed, there could be no kivitas, and hence no civil war. I happened to be in Westphalia last year for the first time, and I asked the well-informed historians and political scientists who I was meeting what did Westphalian imply to them thinking they would give the full definition of bounded territorial sovereignty they said ah yes the potato pancake it is our great delicacy you must have it at dinner and it took a very long time to explain how Westphalian operates in the English language social, social scientific world there we are Finally, to come back to the major point, I think that definition uh, is uh, uh, defective because it excludes many conflicts thought of by at least some of their participants and observers and indeed those who commemorated or remembered these conflicts later as civil wars. For example, the Swiss Sonderbund War of 1847. You'll all remember this as one of the shortest civil wars on record. It lasted only 25 days, with one of the lowest death tolls, I think 93 people by the best count. count. But it was nonetheless thought of at the time, as it is now, as a civil war. Likewise, of course, that that definition would exclude the Irish Civil War. Um, The uh, death toll didn't rise to a 1,000 annual deaths. And it would also not encompass the Troubles here in Northern Ireland, for which, you can correct me, but the last figures I saw for the death toll in that conflict between 1969 and 2001 was about 3,500 fatalities, with a peak of 479 recorded in 1972. Indeed, the total over the whole conflict of 1,000 deaths was not reached until April 1974, five years into the conflict. So by that numerical cutoff point, the Troubles never rose to the level of being a civil war by the social scientific definition. The essential contestability of that definition was not, however, just academic, as we say, as probably we should never say as academics. This became clear during the Second Gulf War, and this is my last example before I draw my conclusions. That definition was used to prove both that there was a civil war taking place within the boundaries of Iraq, and that there was not. Towards the end of 2006 and beginning of 2007, at the height of the violence in Iraq after the US-led invasion, over 3,000 people a month were perishing in that conflict at the time there was vehement political disagreement that the category of civil war fit the facts on the ground in Iraq and representatives of the Bush administration at the time and most and other mostly right-wing military strategists and political pundits denied that the turbulence there merited the name of civil war terrorism insurgency perhaps but a civil war certainly not however in July 2006 even before the very height of the violence the Yale political scientist Nicholas Sambanis announced in the New York Times that according to the correlates of war criteria Mm -hmm. Iraq was indeed already at that point experiencing civil war and for many inside and outside Iraq there could be no doubt that that was indeed what was happening And lots of people saying it at the time but just one example was the then UN Secretary General Kofi Annan who told the BBC when we had strife in Lebanon and other places we called that a civil war what's happening in Iraq is much worse A few months later, an analyst at Chatham House argued, au contraire, that there was not a civil war in Iraq. In fact, he said there were several civil wars and insurgencies between different communities and organizations, Shias versus Sunnis, Sunnis versus the U.S., Shias versus other Shias, Sunnis versus other Sunnis, Kurds versus non-Kurds, and so on and so forth. Later, uh, in 2006, uh, the eminent Brit- British military historian journalist, John Keegan, uh, in concert with an American commentator called Bartle Bull, offered a similar and only slightly more expansive dismissal of the term civil war to describe the violence in Iraq. They wrote that it, for any conflict to earn the designation civil war, the violence must be civil and it must be war. Just let that settle. Complicated, I know it takes time to uh, process... And they went on and say it must be either the exercise or the acquisition of national power. That is, to elaborate very slightly, it must be fought within a state by organized bodies of combatants drawn from a single national population who use force either to grasp or to retain overall political authority within their territory. And so they ran that definition through world history and discovered precisely five civil wars in world history, uh, which they said were extremely rare. The English Civil War, the American Civil War, the Russian Civil War, the Spanish Civil War, and the Lebanese Civil War were the only ones that counted. Around the same time, with slightly more seriousness, uh, but with devastating intent, an American sergeant in the 3rd US Infantry Division in Baghdad, who also happened to hold a doctorate in political science, debunkingly debo- deployed the correlates of war criteria to show, as he concluded, that, quote, Iraq has suffered seven separate civil wars in the last 45 years alone, a total spectacularly at odds with the five civil wars Keegan and Bull had discovered in the whole span of modern history since the mid-17th century. And it was reading this at the time that sparked in my mind the very interest that led to this book uh, some years later. Where were these definitions coming from? Why were they so contested both in academic circles and in political circles? What was the meaning of this? it was beginning to chime with the fact at the time I was at the Huntington Library in Southern California, which holds the papers of Francis Lieber, the author of the Lieber Code in the 1860s. And I was reading a letter of his in the middle of that process where he'd submitted the first draft of the Lieber Code to his boss. His boss said, this is fabulous. Could you just add at the very end, possibly a definition of civil war? Because that's kind of what we're going through at the moment. And it uh, that sets off months of uh, difficulty for Lieber trying to, uh, looking through an entire corpus of prior legal literature where he can't find a legal definition uh, and has to come up with one out of whole cloth and so I was reading that correspondence about how difficult it was to define civil war in the 1860s at the same time as reading these political debates uh, in early 2006-2007 about the application of civil war to Iraq and I thought, Maybe there's a connection. Maybe we need to parse that out and see where these things come from. As this debate over the violence in Iraq showed, there's no agreement about just which features of civil war take priority in various definitions and the way in which they might be assigned normatively to specific concepts. I argue in the book, having run through many, many examples of these failed definite attempts to define and confine the the meaning of civil war, that these attempts at precision are as doomed as they are illusory for the simple reason that civil war is to take the philosopher's term an essentially contested concept, of course, a phrase made famous by W.B. Galley, uh, a teacher at this university. Being precise in the sense of using clear definitions turns out to be inescapably political and ideological in relation to civil war. The elements of the definition, as much as their application, always seem to be matters for principled dispute. Again, that wonderful slide on the Finnish Civil War is a great example of that. This seems to be especially true of civil war, an essentially contested concept about the essential elements of contestation. Now, where a philosopher, a lawyer, perhaps even a political scientist of certain stripes might find only confusion in such wrangling over the term civil war, the historian, at least this historian, sense opportunity. The historian's task is not to come up with a better definition, on which all sides might agree in future, but to ask where these competing conceptions came from, what they have meant, and how they arose from the experience of those who lived through civil war, or those who later attempted to understand it. The stakes are now so high for applying or withholding the label civil war, it seems unlikely that politics can ever be eliminated from its application. Let me just give one very brief example of that, the case of Syria in 2011-2012. Ordinary Syrians knew very well throughout 2011 and the first half of 2012 that what they were experiencing amid contention with the regime of Bashar al-Assad was civil war. However, it took the International Committee of the Red Cross until July 2012, more than a year into the conflict and after as many as 17,000 people had already died, to confirm that what was taking place in Syria was indeed a non-international armed conflict. Only when the Red Cross had made that determination was it possible for relevant parties to be covered by the, provisions of the, uh, the relevant provisions of the Geneva Conventions and the additional protocols to them. A set of legal protocols designed originally to humanize the conduct of civil war, to bring to bear humanitarian constraints on its practice, to minimize some of the terrible human costs of civil conflict, in this case served only to constrain international actors in their attitudes towards Syria." Deciding what we see is indeed a civil war or non-international armed conflict can have political, military, legal, and economic consequences for those outside the war-torn country, as well as, of course, for those within it. The international community may acknowledge the existence of such a conflict in order to uh, avoid involvement. A civil war, it might be assumed, is somebody else's business. It's internal. Outsiders should stay away. Conversely, uh, the label can also authorize intervention after a state has collapsed and a humanitarian crisis ensues. As we've seen in these recent debates on Iraq and Syria, attempts to confine civil war within a single definition have led only to further complication and contestation. As a historian, at least, I would argue it's better to work from the other direction to excavate the various meanings of civil wars they've been laid down over the centuries to see how we got to this point of confusion and contestation. Let me conclude extremely briefly with some reflections on the purpose of this 2,000-year history in ideas of civil wars. I believe this long view of civil wars can encourage three things, at least. Humility, complexity, and perhaps even hope. Humility, because we can see that much of what we think we know now about civil wars has been discovered centuries, even millennia ago. Social scientists now tell us uh, that civil wars last longer, recur more often, and leave deeper wounds than other kinds of conflicts. The Romans, of course, had discovered this during their own civil wars in the first century BCE and and in their reflections on those conflicts over five centuries from Cicero to St. Augustine. It didn't need enormous uh, Rockefeller or Rand grants uh, to prove this. uh, Social scientists could just have read Lucan, for instance. Complexity. Complexity because our struggles over the meaning and significance of civil war arise from multiple histories that continue to jostle and collide in the present. The past is not even past, as Faulkner famously said. Controversies over the meaning of civil war arise from civil war's multiple histories, which need to be carefully brought to light to be properly understood. And finally, perhaps hope, at least a somewhat tempered hope, The long view shows that civil war may not be a congenital curse for humanity, uh, but that is an affliction that we might gradually come to cure. The incidence of civil conflict indeed does seem now to be declining after rising after 1989, it's beginning to tail off somewhat. Major civil wars, long-running civil wars like the Sri Lankan Civil War and now the Colombian Civil War which had lasted for 52 years have lately been terminated after decades of death and destruction. The entire Western Hemisphere is now free uh, from civil war for perhaps almost the first time in two centuries. Maybe humanity is at last on the verge of uninventing what the Romans had first invented over 2,000 years ago. Until we effect that uninvention, I think we need history, and indeed a very long view of it, to assess the future prospects for escaping one of humanity's most destructive discontents. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for listening to this History Hub podcast. You can find hundreds of episodes on our website at historyhub.ie.